Hey everyone, welcome to today's episode of Period Story. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to share some exciting news with you all. We've been nominated for Best Podcast in the Creative Impact Awards. If you'd like to vote for us, go to www.creativeimpact.group forward slash awards. Thank you so much. Your vote means so much. Hi, I'm Lenise Brothers, a registered nutritionist, women's health, hormone, and menstrual cycle coach, and the founder of Eat Love Move, a nutrition and well-being practice. This is the Period Story Podcast, where in each episode, I sit down with a guest to talk about their period story. We get behind some of the myths and misconceptions about periods and so much more. Now, on to today's guest. On today's episode, we have Lauren Lee Crane and Catherine Lee. They are the founders of Cement, a health and wellness supplement for people with painful periods. They started Cement after both being diagnosed with endometriosis and undergoing multiple surgeries. Lauren says that she doesn't want other women who have painful periods, endometriosis, adenomyosis, and PCOS to go through what she did. Catherine says that normalizing the conversation around periods and period pain is exactly why she wanted to start Cement. They wanted to find a natural way to support women's health and voice their stories. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Lenise. We're so happy to be here. Yes, thank you. So excited. Can you both start off by telling me the story of your first period? Yes, this is Catherine. I will tell my story first because I got my period first, which I did not... (laughs) I was very upset because I thought as twins, we were supposed to do everything together. (laughs) And um, I think I got my period almost like six to 12 months before Laura did. And I remember it very vividly. Um, We were, so we grew up outside of Washington, DC and Maryland. And every summer um, our extended family had a beach condo in Ocean City, Maryland, which is on the Eastern seaboard. So we were at the beach, of course. We were at that condo and uh, I still remember the there are two bathrooms in that condo and the bathroom where I discovered I had my period. It had all these like orange and brown daisy wallpaper. <laughs> and I so like that's like stuck in my bed. But anyways, so I was like, <laughs> I saw it started my period and I was like, oh, no. And I remember I told my mom and she was like so excited. At least that's the impression I got. Like maybe she was like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? Um, but and I remember it was when this is going to age us for sure. But it was like a couple years after Frappuccinos came out in Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> and there were no Starbucks in Ocean City at the time. But my mom had found like a recipe to make Frappuccinos at home. So I remember she made she like took out the blender at the beach condo and like made Frappuccinos. And we all like cheered to my womanhood. And I was mortified and I was just like I don't want this and I think eventually like within those first couple of months of having my period I think I asked my mom for a hysterectomy like I didn't really know what it was I just thought it was like it meant you didn't have to bleed every month so <laughs> my mom was like but you're gonna want to have babies and all those things and I was like not worth it don't want this Mm-mm. get it out of my body I don't want it <laughs> just like not and I had I remembered like, you know, with reading like articles, like reading teen magazines and stuff and like, books, like women were so, or young girls were so excited to get their periods. And I was like, I can't relate. I don't, I don't want this at all. And I know, Laura, you could talk about it, but I know you were like equally mortified for me. 
Oh, Kath was uh, 12. Yeah, so we were yeah. a little bit older, I feel like. And I, when Kath got her period, I remember I was just like, oh my God, thank God I don't have mine yet. And I, I think the reason why we felt that way is we were both dancers. We wanted to be ballerinas. I feel like most little girls at some point want that. We continued to want that until we were 18 and we, we danced all the time. We, we did like 25 hours of ballet every week. That was our life. And, um, as a ballet dancer, anything that's going to cause you inconvenience or make it harder for you to be a ballet dancer, whether it's to develop breasts, you know, you, you just want to be skinny. You just want to, um, to be able to move the way that you're used to moving when you're 11 to 17. And I remember I was like, a period's going to be such an annoyance because, you know, you have to wear a tampon, you have to wear a pad. So I remember when Kat got her period and she was saying like, she was so embarrassed. It was just me and my mom and my dad there. It's not like we had other people at the condo with us and I was so embarrassed for her I was like oh my god why are we talking about Catherine's period I'm so glad I don't have mine <laughs> and and Catherine's right I did get mine six months after her and um I actually had mine when we were doing the Nutcracker. So every December, you know, every bunhead in the world <laughs> does the Nutcracker at some point. And um, Kath and I were getting changed. This was, you know, a couple hours before we went on stage. And I was putting my costume on and I noticed there was like a little bit of blood on my tights. And I was like, oh no. I was like, I know what this is. No, why is it happening now? And of course, off, you know, happening right before you're going on stage, you're already sort of like nervous and excited. And um, then getting this thing that Kath and I, obviously we never wanted. I, I know there, there are women you've had on your podcast and our friends who were excited to get their period. That was never our experience. And I think a big part of that was being ballet dancers and being so focused on on wanting to do that and um, the sort of strange culture that ba the ballet world is, you know? I mean, it's not like our ballet dancer teachers ever said, oh, getting your period is bad. I just remember hearing older ballet dancers talking about it and how painful it could be and how, you know, like I remember the Sugar Plum Fairy one year having to um, ask the costumist just to keep taking her out of her tutu because she had to go put a new tampon in. And I remember I was like, oh my God, that sounds like such a headache. So that was that was our experience <laughs> with with periods and ballet. To talk a bit about being bun heads. So for people who don't know what that expression means, typically it refers to um, girls who do, uh, who do, is it ballet? And does it also include gym? gymnast as well or is it only ballet I don't think it I think I've only heard it used with ballet and it's okay. like and when you're in it's you're doing ballet at a relatively high level like a pre-professional level like you and it wasn't until like probably we were 16 that we just assumed we weren't going to be going to university that we would immediately go into a company or if if we were lucky enough maybe we'd apply to Juilliard you know which is a very well-known school but if you did ballet specifically not modern dance or something like that you essentially go into a company as early as like 16 depending on where you are um, and it wasn't until we were 16 or 17 that we realized oh maybe we should get a college degree <laughs> <laughs> tell me a bit more about the ballet well the only I did ballet when I was really little but the only thing I really know about ballet is Christmas equals nutcracker or and then 
uh, the Black Swan, the movie. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that is totally understandable. I feel like that's most people's experience with ballet. And to be honest, Kath and I have never seen Black Swan because we're like, it's going to hit too close to home. So we never watched it. But um, really, I, I feel like how it changed for us is when we were about eight years old, we decided, you know, this is our life. Um, we started when we were about three because we had seen Brishnikov, famous male ballet dancer, um, dancing on television. And I thought he was flying. And I was like, yes, that is what I want to do. So I think a lot of people assume it's like the pretty tutus or the point shoes. Um, but for us, we saw Brishnikov and we were like, that's it. That That is life. Um, and so we took like sort of the classes everybody takes when you start ballet. And there's like tap in it and jazz when we were younger. Um, and when we were eight, we went into this pre-professional academy me and so we would go to ballet anywhere from like when we were younger it was like three days a week by the time we were in high school or about the age of 13 14 we were going you know five to seven days a week and even leaving school early in order to go to class longer um and it's a very it's a very very structured very hierarchical um and very sort of rigid world so um each year you're trying to progress to sort of the next year. And um, within those years, you're also doing performances. So the Nutcracker is the big one in the winter, but we'd have multiple performances in the spring and the summer as well. And then in the summer, you'd also be applying for workshops with bigger companies like the Royal Ballet, if we were in the UK or um, American Ballet Theater, um, we would do workshops with the Joffrey Ballet Theater. We were, um, often considered a little too exotic for the ballet world. We were told that multiple times. So um, we didn't have as much luck with some of the bigger companies because we didn't have the quote unquote look. This was in the 90s. Things have definitely changed now, not as much as they should, but you know, Misty Copeland's out there, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, but that was very different for us in, in sort of the mid late 90s. Um, we were just told we wouldn't fit into the core very well. So this was happening when we were sort of in our later teenage years. And one of the reasons why we ended up getting out of ballet and going to university instead just because of, of some of the discrimination we face but it's and when you're in that world it just seems like even though you see that discrimination you see um, you know the body dysmorphia that can happen and obviously the way we thought about our periods was not particularly healthy um, mm. it was still such a dream for us like that still having such a passion for something that almost nothing else mattered you know and you were just going to do whatever it took to, to get to where you wanted to be. And Kath and I were lucky to have each other because it's a very, very competitive atmosphere. The, the teachers are, are not particularly supportive. Um, and we never competed against each other. As twin sisters, it was like if Kath did well, I felt like I was doing well, even if she got a better part than me. Um, but for the most part, you're, you know, it's not like a team sport. You are very much sort of alone in, in trying to be better than the next person next to you. So it's, it's a very, um, yeah, it's a it's sort of a strange way to grow up because that, you know, we weren't focused. Um, we always had to do well in school because our parents were like, if you don't do well in school, we're taking you out of ballet. So we, we, you know, we got the straight A's or whatever we needed to do in order to stay with ballet. But really, that wasn't important to us. It was just do as well as you can at ballet, nothing else really matters. And that's, you know, most people are going to parties when they're teenagers or doing things like that. And we didn't, it was just like ballet, ballet, ballet all the time. And a big part of it too was like Laura saying about the teachers, like a lot of it in that world is just like, you're so desperate to get approval from all the teachers that you have because they're the ones who like, you know, can 
help push you into a company. They're the ones that give you better roles and different ballets and stuff like that. Um, and then along the same side, of course, and then you have the whole like body image um, aspect of it, which you always hear about with ballet. Lauren and I were very lucky. We never had to worry about weight problems. We, I, I think that's the Asian side of us. Uh, you know, we were naturally skinny. So we were very lucky in that. But we also didn't have like Lars said, we didn't have the looks, you know, we weren't blonde and blue eyed. And then on top of that, we didn't really have the body type either. We're tiny or we're like five, three on a good day. (laughs) And, um, and, uh, and our, you know, our, our, our points, our feet weren't exactly like perfect. Our legs didn't come up to, you know, our shoulders, you know, we didn't have super long legs. I think our torso and legs are kind of even. So it was all these things. It was funny because it was like, we were very lucky. We had friends that, uh, you know, um, suffered with anorexia and stuff. And we didn't have that. But for us, it was like growing up, knowing our bodies weren't quite right for that world. So like, and then on top of that, you have, you get your period 12 and 13, you know? And, and so it's like one more thing to contend with. And the worst part was when like bloating started, cause I don't think I started bloating. I don't know. I can't really remember. I was not in touch with my body at all at 12 and 13, but um, you know, you can't like suck in your stomach. And I remember dance teachers, you know, you wouldn't tell them you were on your period and they would constantly tell you if your stomach was sticking out, you know, and you'd be like, this is not my stomach. This is my uterus. (laughs) (laughs) Can you guys both, can you both talk about how you feel if you thinking back to what you went through and the comments that were made about your body so the the bloated belly um, from what we know now is endometriosis and um, the comments about you being quote unquote exotic talk about how you feel looking back on that now and whether that had any lasting effect on your the way you view yourself yeah, absolutely. It, it definitely does. We are now in our 30s. So it's been almost 20 years since we were in that that very dysfunctional world. Um, but for sure, I still I still remember the comments that the teachers made either when we were on our periods. And and I remember the times when I had such painful periods, but you still had to dance. And I remember the idea was you just shove down whatever pain your body was feeling and you did what you had to do. Um, and that is still the idea that stuck with me, I think, through my 20s, for sure. So even when my endo pain was getting a lot more acute, it wasn't just super heavy, painful cramps anymore. I was getting sharp jabbing pains in my pelvis. I remember just thinking, okay, this is another pain I have to deal with. You just take some painkillers and you go to work. You know, you just keep doing what you have to do. And, you know, part of ballet is is discomfort and pain, you know, whether it's point shoes, you know, your feet always hurt. Um, or just what you're, how you're using your body is, you know, it's like any athlete, you're, you're also creating a lot of wear and tear on your body because of how demanding it is. Um, but that sort of pain and rigor is sort of, it it feels normal. It feels like part of what you have to deal with. And for me, painful periods. And because I feel like a lot of the women we were dancing with also had painful periods and I don't, you know, I don't think most of them had endo, but I, I don't know if it's like a body fat thing, you know, you're, you had really irregular periods because you didn't have a lot of body fat on you and you were probably stressed out a lot. Your body was physically stressed a lot. So I remember just thinking periods were horrible and painful and abnormal and could be super heavy one month and then you wouldn't get it the next month. And that, that just seemed like a normal thing to me. And we definitely never talked about 
that side of our bodies with our teachers. You know, the teachers, it was all uh, physical appearance, like superficial appearance, if you were looking a certain way. Um, and I, I think, you know, the other ways that they told us, you know, being too exotic, being too short. And I remember um, they said our legs weren't straight enough. And that's always stuck with me because um, my legs are slightly bow legged, which I don't think you would normally think about if you were a normal person who hadn't done ballet. But I remember one of our teachers being like, we could have fixed that if you had told me about this when you were younger. And now you'll always have bow legs and no company is going to take you. And I remember thinking like, just like, if you look at Lauren, she doesn't it's not I don't I don't even think I don't think you have bald legs that's the thing like it's like these little things that get stuck in your brain you know for my thing it was like you know our arms didn't straighten all the way or in the right line and our legs didn't but like I didn't even know you had that bald legged thing she also has like a very subtle scoliosis and it was so subtle that teachers just thought she was not stretching her neck out enough so she couldn't like turn her head so it's this constant thing where it's like it's on you you know to fix things that are wrong with your body the responsibility is on you obviously we couldn't do anything about our ethnicity that was you know we had to we never felt ashamed of the way we looked but it but it was just accepting there's a lot of stuff we accepted back then I think because we were kids and it was the 90s that nowadays I don't think they could have gotten away with but like you know just accepting like well yeah we're we're not blonde and blue-eyed so that's we're not going to get certain roles are you know or since our bodies aren't aren't exactly right we're not going to be the teachers aren't going to pay attention to us the same amount of way and that was just accept that was to us that was part of the world we just stayed focused in it you both have mentioned pain quite a lot and something I find quite fascinating about um, ballet dancers is you mentioned the point foos and how you just have to, it's painful, and you're putting your foot in a really unnatural way, and basically balancing on your tiptoes for like, what, five, six plus hours, however long you're dancing that particular day, and do you think that that going to having to go through that, or deal with that pain on an ongoing basis, kind of numb due to the endometriosis pain in the beginning? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just remember thinking that, you know, as a dancer, you know, your feet are sort of shaped a, a certain way and you have a lot of pain, but it's also something you learn to sort of pull out of a little bit. Um, there's ways that make it a little less intense, but I think you're absolutely right using that word numbing because it's kind of a weird contradiction because as dancers, you are very self-aware about your body, you know, just in the ways we were saying, because your things are constantly pointed out to you, but also just moving your body and being able to move through space a certain way and control it a certain way. You're very aware of your the way your muscles move and the way your center of gravity is. But at the same time, you do numb yourself out to any discomfort or any pain because that isn't going to help you, you know, perform. So it is it's this weird dichotomy of of being very aware of your body. But at the same time, if there's pain or things that are hurting, that's something to ignore or push down rather than say, hmm, I wonder why I have really painful periods. I wonder why my cramps are so intense or is I didn't even ever question if that was normal. Our mom also had um, 
really, really um, intense periods. And right, I'm sure she had endometriosis. It was probably not at the same stage that maybe I had it. Um, but that was another thing, you know, in our household, it was sort of normalized that periods were painful. And my mom is also a very stoic person. Well, I wouldn't say I'm stoic. She is a stoic person. And so she never really complained. She would just say, oh, I, you know, my period's really hurting right now, but I'm going to continue to cook food for our entire family during Christmas or, you know, clean the house. It's just part of what you have to deal with is this pain. Can you talk about your, both of you, your individual endometriosis journey? Because, um, so Lauren, you said you had painful periods from the age 15. And then Kath, you said that in your late 20s, you started to have worsening symptoms from endo. Can you talk, so you both had endometriosis, but very different experiences. So can you individually talk about what happened to you? Yeah. Um, so my endometriosis story is like a lot of women with endometriosis. It took a really long time to get diagnosed. Um, I think the average time for women to get diagnosed is about seven to 10 years. For me, it was about yeah 15 years. Um, and the reason why is because I think our culturally, we normalize period pain in a lot of ways, you know, not just in the ballet world or not just in our family, but I feel like whenever I went to a doctor and said, oh yeah, my periods are very painful. They'd be like, oh yeah, that's too bad. You should, you know, you can go on birth control or, you know, just keep taking ibuprofen. Like that's all you can do. So um, even at the point when, you know, being 15 years old and my periods were starting to get really painful and um, it was, for me, it was mainly really, really, um, I could have really heavy periods and then I'd have really, really intense cramping where you uh, had to lay down. Like I, I just could not sit up straight and my body was just like bent double. Um, And that didn't happen every single period, but it happened, you know, often enough. And I always dreaded getting my period. It was never something I was excited about or just thought, oh, hey, I'm bleeding now. I always knew when I had my period and it was painful. I didn't, I don't remember skipping school or anything because again, I thought you just keep doing what you need to do. So, you know, this is something that's going to happen every month or every other month if it was erratic and you just had to deal with it. And then like Kath and I both had the experience where as we moved through our 20s, that pain sort of shifted from really heavy cramping. To me, it was a lot of sharp jabbing pain. Like I explain it as sort of, it feels like you have a bouquet of sharp knives sort of sitting up in your pelvis. That's how endo felt to me. And I was lucky in the sense that I've only ever had the pain during my period. I know a lot of women with endo, you have pain throughout your whole cycle. And I I felt so lucky that it was just that week, but then you have a quarter of your month is something you absolutely dread. And um, at the time, my husband and I were moving abroad. We went to the UK to live in Edinburgh. And at that point, I was like, you know what? I, I, I'm i pretty sure I have endometriosis. I Googled it. I talked to my doctor about it. And she was like, oh, yeah, I bet that's what you have. I mean, that was the conversation. That was it. And so, again, it was something where it's like, okay, I just need to deal with it and figure it out on my own. Um, and so I tried changing my diet. I went vegan, gluten-free, dairy-free, all the things. Um, and my pain just kept getting worse because I think at that point, 
Um, I had so much scarring within my body. I also had an endometrioma, which I didn't know about, which is a, a specific type of cyst you can get with endometriosis, especially in the later stages. So endometriosis, for those of you that don't know, are staged similar to cancer. So you have stage one, two, three, and four. Um, and I, I ended up having stage four. I didn't know that at the time, and no one had told me about these different stages. Um, but as I was experiencing worse and worse pain, I would go to my GP in Edinburgh and tell her, like, it's getting worse and I don't know what to do about it. And then at the point that it was about six months before my first um, emergency surgery, I remember feeling a lump on the left side of my body around where my left ovary would be. And of course, that freaked me out. I just assumed it was ovarian cancer. <laughs> Um, and I told my GP and she's like, it's not really anything to worry about. I don't think you have to worry. And I really had to, um, push her to get me an appointment to see an ultrasound technician. Um, and I finally got that like a couple months later and the technician was like, oh honey, I'm so sorry you have an endometrioma. And I was just so happy it wasn't cancer. I was like, I don't know what that is, but that sounds fine. And she's like, but you'll need surgery. And I was like, that's okay. You know, I'm okay. Take it out. Um, <laughs> And I had no idea what it was. Like, I just, I just was like, okay, it's not cancer. We'll schedule a surgery six months from now. Great. We'll get it done. Um, and I, I don't know if it's just like experiencing pain. You're just like, oh, surgery. Yeah. Massive surgery. Doesn't sound like a big deal. Cause let's just, let's just do what we need to do. Um, and before I could have that surgery, the endometrioma ruptured. Um, again, I didn't know that's what was happening at the time, but it, it felt like something had kind of broke or snapped in my body. And I just had so much pain flooding into my pelvis at that point. And um, I remember this was really early in the morning and Matt had to call, my husband had to call 999 and um, the EMTs came and I was lying on the floor and the guy was like, you kind of look okay. Essentially, like he took my vital signs or whatever. And he was like, you look okay. And I was like, I can't get up off the floor. And he was like, well, you know, you probably have like a sore tummy. Like it was, it was a really odd experience. Like I was like, no, I, I literally, like I'm in so much pain. Um, and he started to like get ready to leave. And I was like, I have a heart condition. <laughs> I was like, cause I have mitral valve prolapse, which is very common for a lot of women. And it's never something that bothered me, but I knew if I said I had a heart condition, they had to take me to the hospital. And so he was like, oh, okay. So then they took me to the hospital and, um, they, even though I told them I had endometrioma, I have endometriosis, they were like, we think it's appendicitis. And I was like, uh, okay. So it took them about 24 hours to decide what to do with me. And um, I finally ended up in the gynecological ward. And I think they thought I had an STD. Like I was in so much pain and they did um, an exam on me with like a speculum and it, it hurt so much. Um, and um, they still kind of didn't believe what was going on. And I started running a really high fever. And that happened over the course of a couple days. And then during those couple of days where they still couldn't figure out what was going on, my stomach swole up because of all the fluid that was pulling into my pelvic cavity. Um, they uh, um, basically it was the endometrioma had ruptured and was like irritating everything. So my body was trying to protect all my organs. I looked about six, seven months pregnant. And that was when they were finally like, oh, okay, we need to do an ultrasound and see what's going on. So this is like day five of being in the hospital. And they were like, oh, okay, you have 500 milliliters of fluid. We need to go in and do emergency surgery and pull all that out. And after the surgery was when they were like, yes, you have endometriosis. It was a ruptured endometrioma. This is what happened. Um, and so I was in the hospital for two weeks, you know, and, and that was after the EMT almost didn't take me to the hospital. So it's such a bizarre experience to 
to by your GP, by by everyone being told like, oh, it's not a big deal, you know, and then this thing happens, it's very traumatic, big experience happens. Um, and so that's been my, that it's just, been, it's been a hard, hard journey. Um, and since then I've done a lot more research. And a year after that first emergency surgery, I learned about excision surgery, which is quote unquote, the gold standard for endometriosis treatment at this time, there's no cure, um, where they go in and they essentially I'm sorry, I'm probably saying this wrong, but laser out sort of and like cut through even healthy tissue to get out a lot of the endometrial tissue. That's where it shouldn't be. And we found an excision specialist in Atlanta and I had my second surgery about six months later. And since then have had way less pain, you know, instead of being a 10 plus off the charts now on my period, I have about like a three or a four, which is amazing to me because I never, never thought that would happen. Um, but it's been a very long, painful road. What you're saying about how the EMT didn't didn't you said you look normal, but you're yet you're saying to him, "I am in so much pain. I need to go to the hospital." That every single time I hear a story like that, it never fails to just make me really angry. At it, just believe women, believe women when they say that they are in pain, and it's so yes, absolutely it's just, it enrages enraging. Yeah. And, and I know that, yeah, that's not an uncommon story to hear, you know, and even if it's not as extreme to get to the hospital, even talking to your GP and saying, this is what's happening. I never had a doctor say, oh, maybe you have endo um, or maybe there's some other complication we should look into, even though my my pain was extreme. Um, that was all my own research. And at that time, there weren't, I'm so glad there's so much more out there on the great interwebs right now about endometriosis. But at the time, there wasn't that much. And I remember just trying to scour through pages and listen to especially chat forums where other women were talking about this. I was like, okay, so I'm not crazy. I'm not alone. This is an actual thing because I didn't get that experience from any doctor that I saw. And, and sometimes people ask like, oh, was it a male gynecologist? I've had tons of gynecologists. They've all been women, and none of them, none of them took my pain seriously. That uh, I, I mean, I, it's not. I you would say it's unbelievable, but it's not. I like it. I've heard this so often. Kath, can you talk about your story now? Yes, mine is slightly less or significantly less traumatic than Laura, and I, a lot of that I give credit for Laura basically being the guinea pig between the two of us because her. We don't know if it was partly because she did get off birth control and that's kind of what triggered more of the endo pain because I never got off birth control. So when she and her husband had moved to Scotland, I was still on birth control. And by my late 20s, like Laura, I started developing more pain that wasn't just cramping. I mean, all throughout my teens and 20s certain periods would be the cramps would be so bad or I would feel like I had a bowling ball in my uterus. Like, you know, like it's such a weird sensation. And I just assumed, especially with her mom who had painful periods, I was like, wow, this is what every woman goes through when they say they have cramps, you know? So like that, I never, even though it was hard to like stand for long periods of time with that sensation, I was like, this is just being a woman. And then by my late twenties, it was actually when I would have my period on my period, like Laura, I was lucky, didn't have pain off my period, but on my period, when I'd have a bowel movement, the pain like in my pelvic region and I guess around my colon was so extreme that I thought I would pass out. And what's funny, it's like, you know, when you see movies and stuff, people get in so much pain and then they pass out from the pain. Like I was like, why couldn't that happen? (laughs) 
I would just not pass that. I would just have this extreme pain, you know, like where I would see stars. And, um, and so that's when, and this was all while Laura was going through everything, which was horrendous. And it was horrible too, not being close to her and, and not understanding the NHS system too. I was so confused by that. They didn't let her have visitors at night. Like also like in the U S which by the way, has a very broken medical system too. I'm not like, I think the NHS is great compared to us, but um, in the States, cause everything's charged to you and they try to get you out of the hospital as soon as possible. They do like a million scans that first night, you know, they would have, realize what she had sooner if she had been in the States. But that being said, she would have still been dismissed. So, um, so that was very like hearing from a distance, hearing her whole experience, um, was kind of mind boggling to me. And I was, I remember being like, well, I just gotta keep my periods not super painful. I don't know what I was thinking. I mean, obviously I couldn't do that. I would take ibuprofen when the pain got really bad. I did start taking one or two days off of work. And that's when I was like, okay, this is, this is affecting my lifestyle. Like I I had to accept it. Um, And then it was when the pain was getting so bad by my late twenties. And by then I think it was right before Lar had discovered that the center for endometriosis care, which was in, which is in Atlanta um, with a great surgeon that that's when I was like, okay, you know what? I think I'm going to have to do this too. Um, so it was a whole year after Lar had her excision surgery that I got it done too. Um, and I have stage two endometriosis. So a significant amount of endometrial growth in my body, but obviously nothing to the extent that stage four would have. Um, uh, they did remove my appendix, funnily enough, because they did see endometrioma cells on my appendix. So I still remember it was like they had given me that like horse tranquilizer right before my surgery. And then they come with this clipboard and they're like, oh, just sign here. It basically says we'll take your appendix if, if it looks, you know, kind of weird. And I was like, oh, you know, like, <laughs> I'm high on drugs. I did. I was like, OK. And um, but the other thing that you like for the surgery prep. Um, especially because I had told him I had so much pain around my colon was there was a potential for a colon resectioning, um, which like by the time I was getting my surgery, I had so much pain. I was like, do it. I don't know. You know, not really thinking of the ramifications. And surprisingly enough, I didn't, I think they found some um, endometrial cells around my colon, but not to the extent that they had to do any type of resectioning. So I was very lucky in that sense. Um, and like Lar since that surgery, I have not had that pain. When I go to the bathroom, the pain is definitely, instead of being at like a 10, it is now during my period, it is like a three or four, um, nothing to the extent where I feel like I have to take off work or just lie down, or I don't even need to use heating pads, which is kind of amazing. Cause that's like, I feel like I always had to use those beforehand. Um, so definitely Laura kind of paved the way for me. We, we both grew up knowing somewhat what endometriosis was. We had heard it because our mom had kind of self-diagnosed, but we, to us, that just meant like, literally you just have painful periods. And so it wasn't until Laura did all her research and she was telling me about it that, I mean, I, for me, I think maybe it was because of ballet, maybe it was just growing up as a woman in the nineties, um, as a teenager, like to me, it was just like, deal with it, press it down. Kind of what Laura said, not being in touch with my body in the sense, like I always use tampons. So I won't even have to like feel myself bleeding, you know, like all that stuff. And then, yeah. So similar to Laura saying like pushing the pain down, trying to ignore it or just like quote unquote, dealing with it. I, to me, that was like 
from that all the way to like even using tampons all the time instead of pads. So I didn't feel myself bleeding and stuff. And it wasn't until um, my pain got so bad. And I think my, I was just so inflamed every time I was on my period, I could almost, I couldn't really use tampons or if I did, I could only use the light tampons. And um, before we went on birth control, I think we went on now I can't even remember. I think it was in our later teens um, and it was mostly for acne and it, it, that didn't do anything for acne. <laughs> but um, once we started birth control pretty consistently, our periods weren't super heavy. But when we first, our periods first started and we were doing ballet so much, our periods were so heavy. I remember our classes were like an hour and a half to two hours and I would have to go to the bathroom at least once or twice to change out like a super tampon. Um but by the time it got to my surgery, which I think I was 29, I can't do the math right now, but late 20s, I wasn't even able to use tampons at all. So that's, I mean, that alone, I was like, okay, something's more serious here. <laughs> but um, yeah, just the whole experience, I mean, it was traumatic. Laura and I, actually, one of the similarities we did have is after our surgery, we both got post-operation infections, which even our surgeon, who he was a great guy, he was like, oh, you have less than 1% chance of getting a post-op infection. And I remember Laura had gotten one um, after hers, and I was like, oh, I bet I'll get my, I'll get one too. And the doctor was like, no, 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 there's no chance of that. Totally did, <laughs> where it was like... <laughs> And, and once again, it was that, that experience of being dismissed. Um, I remember the doctor, they kind of put me with after the surgery, it's not the surgeon. Um, you know, I would constantly call him cause my, I had this low grade fever that just wouldn't go away. Um, and something felt wrong. I think this was like a week and a half after my surgery. Um, and I, I would call the hospital and be like, this is, or I would call the doctor and say, you know, this isn't right. Why am I having a fever? Um, I can't really keep food down. And I remember he just kept saying, oh, this is part of like surgery recovery. And he would brush it off and brush it off and brush it off. And then finally I was talking to my mom, you know, I was like in tears and my mom was like, that's it. We're just going to the emergency room. Um, and sure enough, they like, there was an abscess. They had to drain an abscess. Um, and I was in the hospital for another three days, which in, the U.S. being in a hospital for three days is a long time. Like mm. Laura's in the hospital for two weeks at, you know, with the NHS and that's a long time, but like three days in the U.S., they try to get you out of the hospital as soon as possible. Um, and it was just recovering from that. And I, I remember and the antibiotics that I had to take from that probably made me feel much worse than any surgery I ever did. And I couldn't eat, but you had to eat to take the antibiotics and stuff. So we both, Laura and I both had that experience too, which was awesome. So we, our recovery took a lot longer, I think, than most women. Um, but just, you know, that's another example of being kind of ignored, like after you've mm. been through this very intense surgery and like knowing your body, knowing like this doesn't feel like just a recovery, something's going on. Like my head felt like it was on fire 24 seven, um, I think from the fever and just being dismissed after having gone through all of that, you know, and it, it just blows my mind. And then even today, like Laura was talking, you know, I've had male and female gynecologists um, before my surgery. I would tell them I had endometriosis and they would always say the same thing. Like Laura said, just take birth control, take pain meds. And then even after I had my surgery, I was like, I have proof. I have stage two, you know, and I would tell different gynecologists. I specifically remember one. He was just like, oh yeah, that's, oh, that's rough. Like that was literally the response. It wasn't like, okay, well, like, um, we understand. So you stay on birth control to kind of manage that and, you know, talk through, there was, there's no discussion. I even had, um, 
I have some scar tissue. I think it's up towards like the top of my vaginal wall. So it makes penetration with sex very painful, like full penetration. And that I didn't start feeling until like six months after my surgery. And I remember going to the gynecologist and just like crying because I was like, I don't know what to do about this. And like the, for some reason, it wasn't my normal gynecologist. It was another woman in the practice who was like, I think a robot. And she basically was like, well, you're just going to have to get surgery again for that scar tissue. And I was like, but cutting away scar tissue causes more scar tissue. And she was like, yeah. And that was it. She was just like, you need to talk to your surgeon. And this is after, and in the US, like our surgeon wasn't um, covered by any insurance. He was outside that. So you're paying so much money. I mean, a lot of women can't get the surgery in the first place in the US because they can't afford it. Their insurance obviously is not going to cover it. Or they cover a specific uh, surgeon who maybe doesn't do full excision surgery. They just do ablation. And um, that's not getting to the root of the cause. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's all these things where you're dealing with this medical world too, that does not want to support you at all. Um, But then like when you're going to a gynecologist who's supposed to be, you know, knowledgeable and be focused on female bodies, there's like, there's, it's more like indifference than anything, which just blows my mind. I mean, I'm nodding along as you're talking and everything you're saying, I, and I keep thinking it just trauma and then more trauma. And I want to know everything you're going through now. And I want to talk about the company you founded to help women have better periods. Um, But before we talk about that, I just want to talk about how you have gotten past or if you've gotten past the trauma of the the surgeries and every and dealing with the um, the various doctors and medical professionals who professionals who kind of dismissed your pain or tried to downgrade your pain. Yeah, I, I would say that I'm still working through the trauma in a lot of ways. I think it's almost been one of the unexpected advantages to starting a company sort of about period pain is I've had to think about my experience more, which has been hard, but also a really positive thing because otherwise I would have reverted back to my usual, just push it down. Um, don't think about it. Um, and I, I still like, I think on a day-to-day basis, like now Kath and I talk about it so much and we have a whole community of other women who have endometriosis pain in Atlanta, but just also online and just talking to women about their period pain in general. It's so like life affirming and empowering in some ways because you don't feel alone. You realize everybody is different. You know, you experience pain differently. Even if I talk with another woman who has stage four endometriosis, our experiences are completely different. So um, there's there's so much good that's come out of this too. Um, but Kath and I still talk about how before we go to a gynecologist, even for just a normal routine exam, like we're like, we know we're going to cry in the office. Like I don't generally, especially you, Kath, I don't think you're big criers. <laughs> um, but like, I just know I feel so vulnerable in that situation. And um, even if I talk through with my gynecologist and I usually bring my surgical like photos, like photos from the inside of my body. And I'm like, this is what I had. I've had the experience like Kath where it's still sort of blown off. Um, and so you just always feel this sort of vulnerable um, 
existence when you're in the doctor's office and that you have to fight like, okay, I need to get my fighting face on because I need to make sure they believe me. I need to advocate for myself. But at the same time, I'm not completely over the trauma that's happened to me before. So I know I'm going to feel really sort of teary eyed and then the doctor's not going to take me seriously and all this stuff. That's usually still what's playing through in my head. Um, so yeah, I would say I'm still working through the trauma, still working through some of that pain, but there's been a lot of positive having to go through. And I think the other thing too, is that it seems so like the dark ages, but like any gynecologist you go to, their focus is on fertility. And if they, you know, they, they, most gynecologists have very little experience or got very little education on endometriosis. Um, my guess would be the same with adenomyosis and PCOS, all, all the other things, PMDD. Um, and, and to them, it's at least the ones that I've met, it just to them means potentially could affect your fertility. And so mm-hmm. even when I try to have these conversations with the gynecologist, they always turn it around to like, well, I think you could get pregnant or especially now since we're what like geriatric moms, if we ever got pregnant, right? Because we're 37, no, 36, 37 in two weeks. I'm going to hold on to that 36 number. Um, We're 36. And uh, so like when I go to the gynecologist, every discussion, it's always like, do you want to freeze your eggs? Which in the States takes, I think it's like at least $20,000 start out. Like, and they talk about it so casually, like everybody has that amount of money, but also that that's always how they focus on your body is basically as a baby making machine. And I feel like even the surgeon too, who we loved, it's still like, he's very used to having the conversation around fertility. Like how does your endometriosis, how will that affect your fertility and that kind of thing? And both, obviously neither one of us have kids. We're not, neither one of us have decided whether or not we want kids, even though, you know, it's getting a little late for us. But um, to me, it was always like, no, I want to focus on fixing my body first before I could even think of having, you know, a parasite. (laughs) <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I just was like, why, why, why am I going to focus on kids now when like, I'm in so much pain, but it's just funny, the whole, like the whole dialogue around it, even at doctor's offices, even if they like, you know, kind of ignore your pain, it is always about fertility and how you're basically worthy as a woman because your level of fertility. That's how I mm. see it. And, and like Laura, I always have to prep myself before I, I actually have my annual is on Monday and I know like I'm going to get there early. I'm going to do breathing exercises. Um, I'm going to be ready for the doctor to just dismiss me or, you know, want to talk about freezing my eggs again, even though I told her last time I saw her, I was like, you need to write down in my file. Do not talk to me about freezing my eggs. Um, and even when I said that, even when I met with her last year, she was like, really, are you sure? And I was like, come on lady. Like (laughs) you're educated. (laughs) Listen to me. Um, so like it, it still is like, it's something we deal with. And I think Laura said starting Semaine has kind of forced us to have those difficult conversations and revisit it. But I think that's very healthy and something that we need to do. And it's been so empowering hearing other women's stories, um, and knowing that we're not alone. And the fact that we could, we could create this thing with Laura's husband that actually helps women through their pain. What you're saying about having to prepare to go and see your doctor, to see your gynecologist, I you know, I think it's really important because in an ideal world, we wouldn't have to do that. We could go and our doctors would have the time to spend with us and have the time to ask questions and really figure out what's going on in the moment. But 
certainly in the UKA, there's 10 minutes and you have to make the most of those 10 minutes. But I love what you're saying about, you know, you do your breathing exercise, you've got your notes. Um, Laura, you were saying you, you take the photos of your prior surgery, you know, you, you, you tell them to refer back to the notes you asked them to make on your file before. I think all of those are really important um, for women to remember. They have to go in prepared and be prepared to advocate for themselves. And if they don't feel comfortable doing that, bring someone with them who can do that for them. Um, I want to go on to talk about your company. So is it Semet? Because I'm thinking French, Semet means weak, or how do you pronounce it? You are completely right, and you are saying it correctly. As Americans, we say Semaine. <laughs> we butcher everything. <laughs> so, so yes, it is, it is the French word for the weak. But we uh, we we butcher it in an American French and say Semaine. <laughs> so um, yes, that is the name, and it and it came from from the fact that the supplement that we created, which is a plant based anti inflammatory, is just for the week of your period or whenever you have the most pain on your cycle. Um, generally, even women who have sort of pain throughout their cycle. Um, that might be the worst pain is during ovulation, maybe, or maybe it's right before your period. Um, but for me personally, I've always been really bad about taking supplements continually. Um, and so when Matt, my husband and I, and Cass, when we were creating this, I was like, I am not going to take something every single day. I won't remember. And I don't like the idea of having to take a pill every single day, even if it is all natural and plant-based. Um, and so because we were focusing on the inflammation aspect of period pain rather than balancing hormones, making sure you have more estrogen or less estrogen, um, we we could really focus lowering that inflammation when you need it the most on your period. So in general, this is something that I had no idea about before we started um, Semaine. Uh, my husband did. He's a research scientist. He has a PhD in bioengineering. Um, that on your cycle, uh, over the course of, you know, 28 days, roughly, of course, everybody's different, but that your immune system sort of works cyclically as well. So when you're moving into your ovulation period, your immune system pulls back a little bit just in case you are, you have foreign DNA that enters your body, um, you know, and you're impregnated. So your immune system's like, okay, we don't, we don't want to attack that. Let's pull back. Um, and then if you're not, if you're not getting pregnant, your immune system kind of comes roaring back in the next two weeks and reaches its peak as you start to bleed. And a lot of the times with that um, immune system, that, that causes a lot of inflammation, uh, your immune response and inflammation is connected. And so those of us with painful periods, not just with endometriosis, but with just painful periods in general, you're having sort of a stronger immune response and more inflammation. So the thinking behind creating an anti-inflammatory is we're lowering that inflammation level. So it's all about, you know, like helping your body do its thing, have its period, but with sort of supported help of lowering the inflammation markers that are happening and causing a lot of pain. Um, and that has been tremendously helpful for me because I know I was always sort of nervous about taking different things that regulated my hormones because there's not a lot of research behind endometriosis, behind PCOS, behind any of these period-related conditions. I think there's not a lot of understanding of exactly how our hormones are sort of out of whack um, and that it, that can vary from person to person. 
So I really wanted something that could address the pain without having to be like, I don't know, is my estrogen too high? You know, a lot of people do think endometriosis is estrogenic, so there is a link there, but they're still not sure. I mean, again, because this is a quote unquote woman's disease, the research is starting now. There's a lot more research than there used to be, but there isn't a lot of, you know, there hasn't been in the past. And just generally in medical history, you know, there hasn't been a lot of research on women. I think a lot of people have probably heard that that study about how like women experience heart attacks different than men, but the symptoms we're taught to look out for are the symptoms that men usually have. Um, and I remember reading, this was a study done like, you know, 10 or 15 years ago on um, cervical cancer and they, they tested the drug just on men who don't have cervixes, you know? So it's like, just like, it blows your mind when you learn about this stuff where you're like, wait, you have to be doing these studies on women. And, and a big reason they don't do the studies on women and then prior to human subjects, why they don't do it on, on like female rats is because the hormones and having menstrual blood is very complicated and it complicates the results. And you're like, Yes, but the people taking it, 50% plus, are going to be people who have menstruated at some point and have these complex hormones. I Even when I was in the hospital, actually, in Edinburgh, um, it was a female doctor who was super sweet. But I remember at one point she said, you know, it'd be so much easier for us to figure out what was going on with you if you were a man, because all your bits are on the outside. And I was like, uh, wait, what? I was like, uh, what? Um, I remember just thinking, oh my God, like this is the extent of, of medical knowledge, sort of like generally in the community. I was like, we don't have a chance in hell. Like, <laughs> how is this? This is like the the response. And and starting Samane, we've learned that up to 80% of women have painful periods in their lifetime. So this isn't abnormal. You know, it's like everybody has has pain um, and you experience at different levels. Definitely our stories are a little more acute um, and having endometriosis is, is something that not all women have, though more than 10% of women do have endometriosis. So none of these things are super, um, you know, unusual. And the fact that there aren't hardly any pharmaceutical drugs specifically for women's pain or even a lot of like natural things that we can do on the market right now is really telling to me the fact that women's pain isn't taken seriously. If there's, if, if PMS and endometriosis and all of those conditions were something that men experienced, we'd have gobs of research. We'd have so many, you know, if, if there are 5,000 pills for erectile dysfunction, but nothing for, you know, period pain specifically, except for maybe mitol or pamperin, which hasn't changed in the last 25 years, something's wrong. Something's broken with, with innovation in healthcare for women, for mm. sure. I always think about that line in the show Veep. Did you ever watch it? I don't know if it was, I don't know if it would come if it was in the UK at all because it is very specific to the US, but it's uh, the main character at one point. She was like, you know, if men got pregnant, you could get an abortion in an ATM by now. You know, like, and that's what I always <laughs> think about. It's like, it's like, it's so true. Stuff was focused on men, but um, that I think is so cool about Samane is that so Lauren and Matt after Scotland, they moved to Seattle and, um, that's when Laura was, especially even now when we get cramps and stuff, I think we're a little triggered by experiences before we had our surgery. So even though we know the pain's not going to get as bad, it's still very triggering. And so Laura's husband, um, he's a scientist, he has a PhD um, and was working for the University of Washington at the time. And he started doing research and reading up on white papers and peer reviewed papers on anything that could possibly help. So he started getting all these like extracts, like in powder form 
and adding them to her smoothies. Um, and it was, I always joke that like I, the few times I would like go and visit them in Seattle, I'd like come to their kitchen. They had all these like jars of random powders around like, what is going on. Um, but so he played around with the formula, I would say like about two years. Right. So, um, and Laura was telling me how much of a difference it was making. And I was like, send it to me. Cause I'm, you know, I've been in Atlanta this whole time and they literally sent me, it was a jar um, I think he sent me like a little scoop and with like Lauren's handwritten instructions, like how many scoops I should put in a smoothie each day. And I, I remember the first period I had using it, like my pain was reduced so much. Um, and when I was, and it wasn't until we started talking about it, we were like, well, if this works for us, then maybe it'll work for other women. Um, and that's how it got started. Like literally from them having a kitchen full of jars with powders in them. <laughs> wow. And so then you found that this worked for you. And then what was your talk about the process of getting it onto the market? Yeah, that was that that's been a long journey because, yeah, we started Matt and I started testing those different plant extract powders. So it was like powders of green tea and curcumin. And I feel like those people have maybe heard of as as far as being good anti-inflammatories or antioxidants. Um, but we were testing other things like something called resveratrol, something called boswellia, which is from frankincense. Matt had been doing research at the University of Washington um, about chronic inflammation and aging. So that's how it was sort of in his mind already about like maybe Maybe we don't address hormones, but we address the inflammation that's happening every month when you're on your period. Um, and so after about two years of trying this and Kath and I being the guinea pigs, we opened it up to a larger test group of about 10 women who had um, period pain. So a couple of them did have endometriosis, but most of them just had general period pain. So not just pelvic pain and cramps, but maybe they got migraines or um, leg pain. You know, there's lots of different types of pain that are associated with um, getting your period. And we had really good results from, from that test. And so after getting those results, we were like, okay, let's start this as a business and let's see if we can launch this as a product. Um, and so originally it was, uh, we were just putting the powders and pills ourselves, but we found a manufacturer um, and we, Matt and I quit our jobs in Seattle and moved to Atlanta, um, where we're now living with Kath, <laughs> which is so fun. Um, and we focused on this full time and we started an Indiegogo campaign in the fall to just sort of raise awareness um, and also a way to raise a little bit of money but mainly to get sort of the name out there and make sure people are hearing that we're doing this thing for period pain. And then in February of this year, we launched full-time. Um, and so right now we sell Semaine directly from our website. It's mainhealth.com, but we're hoping to branch into retail. So it's more readily av available to everyone. We do ship internationally, but most of our subscribers right now are in the States just because international shipping is really expensive, but we're hoping, you know, eventually to expand and we could have distribution centers in the UK and Australia specifically because we get a lot of great feedback from those two countries. Um, but that's how that's how it started. It was literally trying to find something to fix my pain. We weren't thinking of it as a business at all. But then when Catherine was like, it's working for me. And the women we had in our study were like, yes, you need to make more of this. We were like, okay, um, we want to help other women. You know, the the it was such a relief to have less painful periods 
the fact that we are now helping other people have less painful periods, like I couldn't ask for a better purpose in life, really, because I I just never thought that was possible. I, I don't know if it was because of years of being told that, oh, this is the only thing you can do. You can go on birth control, you can take ibuprofen, that I just thought that was kind of it. It didn't even strike me that why it why aren't there more products out there for women, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think it's such a great time now because people are talking about periods more openly. You have this wonderful podcast where people are talking about their first periods and hearing the differences in those stories are amazing. I think it's so great to normalize those conversations. And I think that will change um, the way innovation help happens around women's healthcare. Just the fact that, you know, people are, are making organic pads or reusable menstrual cups and like all of like the Honeypot Co. I don't know if that's big in the UK yet, but it's here in Target that, you know, having fe- feminine care wipes like that's, you know, something that's in like the vernacular that we growing up, you know, we never talked about that sort of thing, you know, and that Mm -hmm. wasn't on the shelf at Target. Um, And now you see that and women are interested in trying more natural solutions or just any solutions to try to make their periods better or more manageable Mm -hmm. and not this hush hush taboo thing that you can't talk about. Mm. I think it's incredible what you, you both have done. And I love that you, you took an issue that you had and, you then created something that would not only help you, but would help loads of people with the same problem. So amazing. I can't wait to see it here in the UK. Um, but to round off our conversation, you both have said so many amazing things. What would you want someone listening to the podcast to take away from what you individually have said? That's such a great question, Lenise. I I would say... As hard as it is, always trust yourself and advocate for yourself. You do know your body better than anybody else, better than any doctor, better than anybody in your family. Being in tune with your body and knowing something doesn't feel right, push your doctor, push your healthcare provider to give you answers. I, if I had known that when I was younger, I, you know, I just always assumed, oh, this person went to medical school and is a doctor. They know way more than me. If something was wrong, they would tell me. And I think, you know, I, doctors are amazing and they're great. And I'm so glad we have the healthcare available that we can go to them. But that doesn't mean that they know you better than you know yourself. Um, listen to your body if something feels wrong, you know, and also listen to um, to yourself and not just assume that because one treatment works for one person, that that's what you need to do. I think a lot of the time in the health and wellness space, we're like, oh, I found this diet that cured me of this thing. You know, I, my endo is so much better because I stopped eating gluten. That is amazing. And that works for a lot of people, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for you and you have to do that same thing. Um, if birth control works for you, if you need to be able to take that in order to get through day-to-day life, you know, do that. Don't ever feel ashamed because because um, people are pushing a certain solution on you. I think that's Mm -hmm. so important. Yep. Uh, Same exact thing. Reiterate, advocate, advocate, advocate for yourself. I think that's the big thing. If I could go back in time and talk to my 12-year-old ashamed self of my period, just giving myself grace, but also telling myself, like, you know, trust yourself and mm. um, be comfortable with your voice, especially when you're with doctors. Um, and then the the other thing, what Laura said, exactly, we're identical twins and we've had very different experiences. You know, um, I compared to Laura, I eat garbage, you know, like I, <laughs> once in a while I eat fast food. I, I love I love to drink a Coke. Uh, 
<laughs> okay, <laughs> please don't judge. But Laura is much healthier than me, and, and part of that is driven by the pain that she had and and kind of the the PTSD left over from her experiences. But for me, diet does help absolutely without a doubt. But um, if I had just started looking into not just endometriosis, but period pain and seeing all these like wellness warriors who can, you know, eat just kale for a day and, you know, that works for them, that I would feel kind of alienated from that. So I think Hmm. reiterating what Laura said, like you figure out what works for you and then give yourself grace. You know, you're not going to be this perfect pinnacle of health and um, you're going to have bad days and good days and, and um, just celebrate the things that do work. But yeah, not that some women don't want to use tampons or don't want to use hormonal birth control. And that is great. Um, but some women do, and that's also great. So giving yourself grace and, and figuring out, like Lars said, become an expert of your own body and what works for you. Thank you so much. It, I honestly feel like I could talk to you guys for another hour. It was just so brilliant. Um, oh, thank so, you so much. Lydia. <laughs> so fun. <That's>, <laughs> um, you mentioned the website. Um, URL before. Can you just mention it again so listeners know where to find out a book about Samen? Yes, thank you. It's samainhealth.com. So Samain is spelled S-E-M-A-I-N-E, health.com. And we're also very active on Instagram. So, and that's just at Samain Health. Um, so thank you so much, Lenise. Yes, that's where you can find us. We're there all the time. We also have a chat on our website and that's us answering questions. We love when people pepper us with questions about Samain. So please feel free to do that. Thank you so much. For more inspiring conversations, head over to periodstorypod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you want help with your menstrual or hormone health, email me on hello at eatlovemove.com to set up a free 30-minute hormone health review. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Tag us, come say hi, and send in your requests for who you'd like to see on the show on Instagram and Twitter on at periodstorypod or email us at hello at periodstorypod.com. I'm Lenise Brothers, and you've been listening to Period Story. Thank you so much for listening.